But first, we start with the gun control debate in Canada still going on. Now, if you remember back to last April, and who can forget it, the Nova Scotia shooting rampage, 22 people killed. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, in the aftermath of that, promised to ban military-grade assault weapons in Canada. And here is what Trudeau said at that time. Today, we are closing the market for military-grade assault weapons in Canada. We are banning 1,500 models and variants of these firearms by way of regulations. These weapons were designed for one purpose and one purpose only, to kill the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time. There is no use and no place for such weapons in Canada. Okay, it's Trudeau uh, last year, and now that list of 1,500 different models of firearms on the banned list has actually expanded dramatically, uh, looking at 9,500 models of firearms potentially to be banned in Canada. A lot of the stuff he said there, too, uh, these weapons are designed to kill the most number of people possible in the shortest number of time. Not really, not really, when you consider that fully automatic weapons are already banned in Canada. But look, let's get into this now. My guest is Glenn Motts. He's the Conservative MP for Medicine Hat, and he's a member of the Public Safety Committee on Gun Control in the House of Commons. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Thank you very much for coming on. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks very much. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, one of the things that is it, part of this eternal debate on gun control in Canada is you've got Trudeau announcing this ban on what he calls military-style assault weapons. It seems to be a popular move. But is this actually going to solve any of the problems that we got in Canada in terms of gun crime? Because a lot of these weapons get smuggled across the border, right? They're, I mean, they're not owned by law-abiding Canadians in the first place. Exactly, and that's the part that I, I listened to that uh, at the front of your show. I listened to that uh, again this morning, Mike, and I just get angry hearing that sanctimonious individual, um, you know, just actually use language that is deceiving Canadians. I mean, yeah. there is no such thing as military-grade assault weapons in this country. They've been banned since the 1970s. And uh, he is using language that's inflammatory to try and sway public opinion from individuals who do not mm. understand the current tough gun laws we already have in this country and uh, it's, a, it's a misguided approach on public safety, and it's not working, and it will never work. Yeah, I think that's something important for the listeners to understand. When he says in that clip we just played that these weapons that he's banning are, are designed to kill the most number of people in the shortest, in the shortest time possible— Look, you know, he's describing basically like a machine gun there, which is—it's all those weapons are already banned in Canada. Right, like you Absolutely, can't you Michael. can't buy you can't buy a machine gun where you press the trigger down once and hold the trigger down and it sprays out hundreds of bullets. That's already re- illegal. Yes, right? but but most people don't realize that the yeah. people who aren't involved in the uh, and know the gun laws we have in Canada think that this is actually going to make a difference, and so they have used this in this inflammatory false language to try and score political points with people who don't know the facts. Well, what kind of what kind of weapons are they banning? Well, they they call the uh, AR-15s and their variants is what they what they have said as uh, part of this ban and and the you know you talk to any military individual those aren't mil- that's another military style assault rifle uh, again it's another made up term um, you know that they are banning everything that's a variant they've included shotguns on this list even though Minister Blair has has denied it in the House I've asked them numerous times 
and publicly he said it uh, out of the house that there's no shotguns been banned. Well, they have been. There's been not nearly 70, uh, 22 rifles have been banned. Um, you know, my uh, my grandson's little 22 because it has a uh, a part on it that is the variant of an AR-15 variant is banned. Like it's it's just ludicrous. And it's these are people they're banning firearms from people who are not the problem, who uh, have yeah. never been the problem in this country, and that's legal firearm owners who have gone through all their vigor to take the training to be vetted by, by the law enforcement to make sure that they are able to even own a firearm. They're qualified to own a firearm. And, um, you know, they've, they've gone through the test to do that. And so, so it makes no sense. We are missing the point on this whole issue, and that is right. criminals uh, have never followed the law, and they will never follow the law. And so having this as a ban, um, I don't know how many criminals are intending to turn in their, their military-style assault rifles anytime soon. Okay, the AR-15 is the weapon that you mentioned there, and, and that's always the one that's central to this debate. And the AR-15 is a semi-automatic rifle. Each each bullet fired requires a separate pull of the trigger. It's not an automatic weapon. It will only take a magazine that has five bullets in it. But here's the here's the deal. It's a scary-looking weapon, right? I mean, it's got the, the pistol grip, and it's got a short stock on it, and they're almost always, like, flat black in color. So it's, like, a scary-looking thing. It looks like a military weapon. Would you agree? Well, and that's, well yes and no. I mean, it, it, it's not a military weapon at all. Or Yeah, but it looks like one. It looks like one is what I'm saying. looks like one. Yeah, but, but, but lots of firearms can be made to look like that. And yeah. firearms should never be classified on how they look. They should be classified on what they do and, and, and uh, you know, and their capacity and their capability. And that's where this, this, uh, this whole piece of legislation has been, uh, you know, a boondoggle from day one that it, it won't do that. It doesn't do that. It, it scares people into believing that we have this problem where none exists. And, uh, you know, it doesn't do anything, as you said earlier at the top of the show, Mike, with smuggled firearms. We know the majority of crimes being committed with firearms in the Lower Mainland and in Toronto are done with firearms that have been smuggled into this country. Right. That's the focus that we should be on, and we are not. And that's right. where the, the Liberals are misguided in their entire approach to gun violence. If they were serious about gun violence, they would have dealt with it. Um, last week, they had a vote in the House to deal with smuggled firearms um, you know, and put tougher sentences on those who, who are in possession of smuggled illegal firearms and not let them out on bail if they're in possession of those until they, uh, you know, get on trial. But no, they voted that down. Why? Because yeah, this was a this was a private members' bill brought forward by the conservatives. It would, it increased the minimum sentence for gun smuggling. So, like smuggling guns across the border into the country, the minimum sentence would go from one year. I can't believe it's only one year actually for that crime to three years. And five years on a second con conviction. And so what happened with that bill? The Liberals uh, liberals and NDP voted it down. Is that right? Yes. Well, the, the bill is really about uh, if you're in, in possession of a legally smuggled firearm. That's the, the, what the bill was about. And then, yes, it deals with, you know, the increased sentence, but it also denies bail for individuals with that offense. And they, you know, yeah. until they are, you know, they, they go to court. So, yes, the Liberals and the, the NDP sided together and voted down that particular piece of legislation. Uh, and, and it was, and why? It was only, it was a second reading, which means it was going to go to study at committee. So the liberals are even afraid to have it be studied at committee. Like, I, I, yeah. I, it, it baffles my mind that they're that 
uh, ignorance to let the me, facts about gun violence in this country. And let me play, this is the approach. Let me play this for you real quick. This is Justin Trudeau, and you're going to hear him talk about the, uh, the AR-15 here. Here's Trudeau. For many families, including many indigenous people, firearms are part of traditions passed down through generations. And the vast majority of gun owners use them safely, responsibly, and in accordance with the law, whether it be for work, sport shooting, for collecting, or for hunting. But you don't need an AR-15 to bring down a deer. Okay, you don't need an AR-15 to hunt a deer, he said there. What do you say to him? <laughs> well, I don't, there's nothing to say. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Uh, at the best of times, and he certainly doesn't have a clue what he's talking about when it comes to firearms. Somebody's fed him a line, and anybody who's ever been hunting before or, or used an AR-15, it's a sporting uh, gun that most people use for target shooting on a range. Yeah. And, uh, you know, most people aren't going to take an AR-15 to go hunting with. Well, you can't. Um, it's illegal to use an AR-15 to hunt, yeah. That's, that's exactly that's, my that's, point. That's and the so, point. It's illegal already. So, as the fact, I mean, that, that should tell Canadians who knew the law that yeah. he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. And those who didn't, uh, again, he's that, he's that um, you know, okay. just spouting off information that is completely false and have people believe that they actually care about public safety when we know that their, uh, their history has okay. been anything but caring for public safety. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Well, thank you very much for asking, Mike. And if you ever want anything to deal with this issue again, then we'd be more than happy to to speak truth to Canadians about this whole matter. All right, welcome back to the show. So for parents who have kids who attend Garibaldi Secondary School in Maple Ridge, that email that they received on Sunday was uh, troubling indeed. The email informed parents that someone who had tested positive for COVID-19 at the school had also been in close contact with someone else who had tested positive for one of the COVID variants. The variants, of course, are highly contagious. Uh, public health officials really worried about these COVID-19 variants. So this potential exposure at Garibaldi Secondary School in Maple Ridge, very troubling. Now, the latest on this, 80 students and staff from the school have been told to report for rapid testing uh, for uh, COVID-19, including the variant of the virus. Have a listen to this now. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry. Uh, she was, of course, asked about this uh, situation yesterday. Here she is talking about that variant and children. We have been, as you know, doing surveillance for these variants of concern for some time, and we've been targeting uh, school-aged children, and so far none of the uh, tests on anybody who's in the school system have turned up positive. Okay, well, that's, uh, I guess, reassuring for now, but uh, the testing continues now with the fears of this COVID variant uh, potential exposure at a metro high school. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Matt Westfall, president of the Surrey Teachers Association, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Matt. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thank, thank you very much for coming on. What goes? What went through your mind when you heard about this potential exposure of a COVID variant in a in a metro school? Well, I mean, this is something we've been kind of waiting because waiting to see because it's not a surprise that that variant is starting to spread. And I really feel for the students and staff and families of that school who you know have to really turn their lives upside down and really have to wonder what's going to happen with this. And this really points the need, we think, to stricter measures in school. 
Do you think that they've handled it properly to this point with this particular school? I know this is outside. This is in Maple Ridge. It's outside of your district. But do you think that they've been? Do you think they've handled it okay? Like in, informing informing the parents there in that email on Sunday, and then sending eighty people for rapid testing. Uh, I, I think it, it's, it needs an aggressive response. So I'm glad that they are doing that. I, I think that when you see a potential for a variant to be with someone in the school community, and we don't know for sure, but the potential is there. Given that we know students see each other outside their cohorts, we really think yeah. they should be testing the whole school. Wow. Okay. This is a big school, right? It is. Yes. But we have we have the testing capacity. I think it's like it's over. I think it's over a thousand kids at that school. So you're saying like thirteen hundred. Thirteen hundred. Okay. This is a big high school. So you're saying test everybody in the school. Certainly, if it if it turns out that anyone connected with the school has it, then yes. But the trouble is that I think we need to move aggressively rather than trying to wait until and then play catch up. Okay, let me play some uh, another clip here from Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday when she was asked about the situation at the Garibaldi High School in Maple Ridge, and here's what she said. If we got it. One person who was in the school um, did have a positive COVID test and was a contact of somebody who had a variant. So there, we're obviously going back and testing them as well. Um, but we want to make sure uh, that there's no other spread in the school. So that's the reason we're doing this. And as we learned in uh, you know the use of uh, the rapid tests in um, the correctional facilities, for example, they are helpful in giving us a sense of what's going on, but they're not accurate enough on their own so we're doing both uh, testing with the, the rapid test and the PCR test okay so both tests being used there as you heard her describe the rapid test being deployed here after this potential exposure at this Maple Ridge High School my guest is Matt Westfall president of the Surrey Teachers Association so Matt what, what else do you think needs to be done I mean is this you know you guys have been beating this drum for months here about masks in school and smaller classes and that's still what you're looking for correct Absolutely. And, and I guess my question is, what are we waiting for to expand the use of masks in school? Uh, we've never said that it's the only precaution. And we, so we agree with Dr. Henry, it's not the only thing. But we think it's the main thing that is not being done now that could be done. Uh, and school districts have taken the lesson from the CDC when it says masks are not recommended for younger students, for example. They take that as meaning they, they can't make younger students wear them or that they can't have other older students wear them in the classroom. We really think it needs to be a stricter rule. So you think like kids should be masked up all day, even when they're sitting at their desk? Yes, right? I do, because when they're sitting at their desk, they're breathing in the same air as other stu- all the other students in the classroom. They're close to other students. So we think that's a protective measure, which is important to have. And uh, there are other jurisdictions that have done that. So children can handle it. It's not ideal. We know that. But it's a measure that we really need to do rather than waiting to see if it gets worse and then instituting a stricter rule. In your experience, what what are you hearing sort of from the front lines in in the school system? Are kids kids masking up when they're supposed to mask? Are are some kids choosing to wear the mask while they sit at their desk? I mean, what are you hearing? I, I mean, some students are. The younger they are, the less likely they are to be doing it. So we see far less of that in elementary school than we do in secondary, but it's not certainly not universal in secondary schools. And in a secondary school at lunch, when it's very crowded and kids are all over, uh, some schools really have a hard time getting kids to actually be wearing them when they're and they're, they're congregating with students from other cohorts. It's a kind of a constant battle to try to keep compliance going. Okay, let me play another clip here for you from Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday, and she was asked whether schools need uh, the, the rules in schools need to be revised because of the COVID variant. Here she is. 
Dr. Rekha Gustafson, who works in my office, is, uh, has been the lead on that for the last few months, pulling together what we know and revising and updating the guidance. And yes, uh, there will be more about that in the coming days. I do think it's important to enforce the mask wearing that we have in the school setting, and particularly in light of uh, variants that we're seeing in our community. Oh, Oh, okay. So you heard her say there that they're updating the guidelines and you'll hear more more later this week. Matt, how do you interpret that? Well, I, I'm encouraged to hear chances of some movement because, as you said, it's been a bit of a slog on mask rules. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to see what guidance comes out because we've been, BCTF has been working hard at this, at the Provincial Steering Committee and with Dr. Gustafson to try to get something stricter uh, to yeah. protect everyone in the school. Yeah, you heard her mention there enforcement. What does that say to you when she brings up that issue? Well, I think it's a, it's an admission that masks really are important in the school, certainly yeah. in common areas. But we think, you know, the, the problem with the, just not doing it in classrooms is their assumption that that's a safe space because you're with mm-hmm. those people during the day. But outside of school, there's all kinds of mingling and people are going home to their families. So that's why we think within the classroom is also necessary. Okay, that sort of jumped out at me, that clip there, where she said they're revising and they're talking about enforcement and there'll be more information coming later this week. I mean, this is, she seems a little bit more open to it, to it now. Like, I wonder if the mask mandate in schools is, is maybe coming later this week. Is that possible? It's possible. I really hope yeah. so. I don't want to prejudge what, what's going to happen. I'll, right. Well, we'll see what's in black and white there. But I really, it sounds like there's going to be something more than what we have now. And that's definitely a good thing. Whether it will go as far as we think it needs to go, we'll have to see. Okay, we're following it closely, Matt. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. All right, welcome back to the show. We just heard from the president of the Surrey Teachers Association there detailing how teachers feel about what's happening at Garibaldi Secondary School. And now we'll get to hear from a student and a parent at that school. Our show contributor, John Jang, has that conversation this morning. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. How are parents feeling in Maple Ridge following the news that their children may have been exposed to a variant of COVID-19? And for that matter... How are the students feeling directly? Today, we'll get more of that perspective as we're now joined by Melissa Salas and her son and Garibaldi student, Ethan Knowles. Melissa, Ethan, thank you both for giving us some time here today. Absolutely. No problem. Melissa, I'd like to start with you first, and I just want to know, what was your immediate reaction when you read the letter that was sent out to families by Fraser Health over the weekend, just detailing what was happening at Garibaldi? Um, We've received a lot of these letters over the last couple months so initially I wasn't I mean there's always a little bit of concern when you receive it um, but I just assumed again that this one didn't really affect us Um, shortly after we received the letter we received a phone call from the principal at the school notifying us so then obviously my concern level went up a little bit higher at that point (laughs) and Ethan for you if these notices have been coming in you know every now and then over the past school year were you somewhat prepared this time around, or were you hearing something different about this case in particular, maybe in private with your friends and classmates? Uh, I I wasn't really that concerned, because um, they they our school really has a handle on the system that they have. Uh, but it was like when when my I was talking to my friends and we were all texting about just getting calls from the school. And uh, so that, that at that point, it was a little bit more shocking. 
Melissa, because Ethan was in close contact, uh, was Ethan tested? I understand that students and staff members were offered those rapid tests yesterday. Yes. So Ethan went and got tested yesterday, I think around 1030. And we got a call back around 330 that he was negative, which was a relief. And, And the results were obviously very quick, which was really nice. Speed and accuracy are so important here. I'm glad we know right now that Ethan is negative for COVID-19. Ethan, what was that experience like for you having to get tested yesterday? Uh, it, it was good. They made, I had to do a gargle test and then they did a nose swab, which was a little uncomfortable, but it is what it is. And Ethan, given what has happened here, how confident are you in the current safety measures that are in place at your school? Do you do you think it's enough or can something else be done in your opinion? I think the system would work better if we were told to wear a mask in class. And Melissa, do you have any concerns about Ethan now going back to school to finish the school year? So Ethan did come to me yesterday with some concerns um, regarding one of his classes um, and the fact that the teacher had been allowing students from a different cohort into the classroom without a mask on. Um, And so I have talked to the principal at the school, um, and he is wonderful. I've had to, you know, chat with him a couple of times about various things throughout the school year, and he does have a really great handle on the school and the protocols in place, and he is going to deal with that immediately and look into it further. Um, with that being said, you know, Ethan said it sends a confusing message to the students when they're being told, you know, you need to follow these rules. Um, if you don't, there's possibly suspension. Um, but then a teacher is doing something completely opposite of what expecting the children to do. And how satisfied are you with the level of communication that's being shared by the school district and also by the health authorities? Um, I think that's a big question. <laughs> um, like I said, we've received the notifications several times throughout the year. So, you know, if it hits the news, we're already aware of it, which is nice. It's not such an alarming, um, you know, we just know ahead of time. Um, so that is good. Um, I think that there could be more transparency. Um, I mean, yesterday the principal, you know, he let us know what was going on, and we received a call from Fraser Health shortly after. So they were really quick about things. Um, But I just feel like there's still a lot of information that parents don't know. Um, And one of the concerns that I also had yesterday was that we have three other children um, and they go to different schools and they go to daycare. And, um, you know, let's just say it was the variant and Ethan had been positive. We were still told to send our other kids to school and daycare yesterday. And Mm -hmm. they're all in close contact with Ethan, obviously. And, you know, this variant is more transmissible and, you know, say they had gone to school, now we, ha- we possibly have to test three other schools, a daycare, you know, there should be something in place that if a student is being tested, regardless of having symptoms or not, that their siblings stay home until you get a negative test. I can't imagine that stress, waiting on test results for Ethan while being told to send your kids off to school or daycare, your other children, not knowing whether or not that's going to spell disaster. One thing you did tell me beforehand, though, is that you went against those suggestions and you kept everybody at home yesterday. We did, um, because our other children right now actually have a sore throat and are coughing. We're, you know, obviously fairly confident at this point that it's a cold, especially given that Ethan's test was negative. Um, But we're not going to take any chances. My daughter could go to school. She's only got one of the symptoms, but we're not going to send her. And I know that there was concern um, from some of the elementary uh, school parents 
um, that had children at Garibaldi as well as at Blue Mountain because, like I mentioned before, you know, you're sending these kids to school when they have siblings that are being tested, and it just opens the door for for it to continue being passed along. And before we let you go here, and I want to thank you and Ethan both for giving us some time here this morning. Melissa, if you knew that Dr. Bonnie Henry was listening to us this morning, what is the one thing you would say to her right now? I would just recommend, I would like to see her make it a mandate that students need to wear masks in school at all times for their sake, for the teacher's sake. I mean, I'm not a teacher, um, but I can't imagine what it's like going to work right now you know, and being on edge all day long, every time somebody coughs or every time somebody sneezes and they're not wearing a mask, I feel like that would cause me major anxiety. And I'm sure, you know, it's not easy for the teachers or for the students. She is Melissa Salas, and he is Ethan Knowles, student at Garibaldi and mother of Ethan. Thank you both for joining us here today. Awesome. Thank you. No problem. Okay, John Jang joins me now. John, good job on that. Really interesting to hear a perspective from a parent and a student at Garibaldi High School there in Maple Ridge, especially with the, the fears of this COVID variant. I thought it was interesting when she mentioned that she's had, she has other children who are, don't go to that particular school, the younger kids, so they're not going to that high school. But she was advised it's okay to send her younger kids to school and to daycare before the test results come in. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that was mind-blowing to me. Like, why would you want to roll the dice on that? And I can't blame her. That's the instructions that she was given by uh, health authority and and school district officials. But if you didn't know that Ethan was negative for the virus, and we're assuming that there's this exposure to the variant of the virus, which we know can be uh, uh, transmitted a little bit more easily than just your standard COVID-19 variant, well, then what are you doing? You're, you're flirting with disaster. Thankfully, Ethan was negative, And thankfully, right. Melissa made this the sensible choice to just keep everybody at home. But imagine if things had gone the other way and it was worst case scenario. We're talking about potentially a disastrous situation. Mike. Well, yeah. I mean, if the kid had tested positive, I mean, sometimes we're told that people can be asymptomatic. They, they may not be showing symptoms, but they could potentially positive. Like if that test had come back positive and then she had already sent her younger kids also potentially exposed to another school... Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Hmm. All right. Where does it go from here? We got 30 seconds here now. Uh, I would imagine that uh, there's going to be more pressure on the school boards to look into voting on mandatory masks is something that Kathy Marlis with the yeah. BC School COVID Tracker brought up yesterday. So I'm assuming that there's just going to be more pressure now that the public is a little bit more aware about this. Thank you, John. You got it. Thank you, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the saga of Punky the dog now. We've talked about this case on the show before. Punky was an Australian cattle dog owned by Susan Santix, who was a Metro Vancouver retiree. Everything was fine until the summer of 2017 when Punky attacked a woman at Jericho Beach in Vancouver Punky was seized by animal control and ordered to be put down. Now, Punky's owner fought to get her dog back, fighting all the way to the Supreme Court of British Columbia, which upheld the death sentence for Punky. The Supreme Court of Canada, yes, the highest court in the country, dismissed a last-ditch appeal in January of last year, and Punky the dog was finally euthanized on January 23rd, 2020, after spending more than two years on death row. Let's talk about this case now with my guest, Victoria Schroff. She's an animal law lawyer. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Victoria, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. 
Um, this is a story a lot of people may have heard about the story and the saga of this particular dog. Can you remind the listeners of, like, what did Punky do? Like, how severe was that attack on that woman back in, on Jericho Beach back in 2017? Like, why did Punky, why was Punky ordered to be euthanized like that? What did, what did Punky do? Well, I think, you know, what, what we're looking at there originally in the case was that um, Susan Santix was not represented at trial. And um, that's when the facts of a case go in. And this is a very important thing to say at the outset, just because um, that is exactly what ended up affecting the entire case through the appeal levels. Um, I was brought in at the B.C. Court of Appeal level and um, and above. But before that, Susan um, at the trial level was on her own trying to defend um, the allegations about her dog. And she was... um, suffering from mental health issues and um, a lot of other difficulties. Yeah, so do we do we know then what the facts are in the attack? Like, how, how severe was the attack? Do we know? Is yeah, that- um, that's, that's all outlined in, in the provincial court um, judgment. But, um, you know, I think, I don't, I don't know that there's too, too much benefit in going over that. It was in an off-leash park in Jericho. A woman was bitten. Um, and and jumped on. It wasn't that she's she's never denied that somebody wasn't um, injured. We we know that somebody was injured. This is not um, you know the the point of it. It is really about what happened after and whether or not there was a scope for rehabilitation. That's that's right. really where I um, came into the case. Okay, is it typical for a, a dog uh, jumps on someone and bites someone in an off-leash dog park that that dog would typically be uh, put down? Well, it really depends on the facts. So here's yeah. here's what I think needs to happen in these cases, and I think that it would be beneficial for both public safety and for dog guardians. And that is that we need to focus a lot more on bite prevention and having um, animals go through some kind of training and and humans it's both sides of the leash that need training i should i should say and really i think in this way when we look at how do we get um how do we see um better canine citizenship we're going to look at the the major platform for me has always been education and i think um through that we can get prevention and create responsible pet guardians and pets Right. I remember I, I've interviewed Susan Santix in the past uh, about her dog, and this was before Punky was uh, was euthanized. And yeah. I, I remember her telling me that I believe she was allowed one visit a week with the dog while it was under the in the in the custody of animal control, and she was allowed to kind of visit the dog once a week through a through a fence. I recall. Is that yeah. right? Yes, that is. She was allowed a weekly visit, um, and um, she could interact with him only with her hands through a chain link fence right. yeah. while he was in his cell. Yes, that is true. Yes, I remember her telling me about that, and I, she really wanted the dog back, and I remember her telling me that, look, if you just let me have the dog back, I'll, I'll make sure the dog has a muzzle on when I, when I bring the dog outside. Like she, she had promised to keep the dog under control in the future. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, she said she would have done whatever it took. Absolutely. Yeah. And I and I have no difficulty in believing that. Um, and right. I think that the situation is the same with a lot of um, other clients who have dogs that are labeled dangerous and how they can then be managed in society. And I think there is a way of doing this safely. Um, and 
the the way that that can be done is again i mean not everybody even knows how to use a muzzle i think people have to be trained how to do that um but i think there's one step that often isn't taken in these cases and that is that um before determining that a dog is dangerous or vicious particularly before um they're going to take a step on euthanasia uh, i think a vet must be consulted for a complete physical and behavioral assessment and I think that's a step that is that is um, often missing in in our equation as to how we diagnose, treat, and label. Right. Speaking of Victoria Schroff, she's an animal law lawyer. Uh, in the case involving Punky and and Punky's owner Susan Santix, was Susan Santix uh, largely uh, representing herself in this uh, legal battle, or did she have counsel? She was completely representing herself in yeah. the original trial, and it lasted for one day. Um, I've never had a case that lasted only one day in all the times that I've done um, animal trials like this. They've always been a few days. So the, the case was over very quickly. There, um, you know, th- that's just what happened at the time because Susan didn't have counsel in part and um, she didn't have her, um, she didn't have her witnesses organized. And as I say, she had, she had mental health difficulties and PTSD and didn't understand court procedure. Right. Can you t- tell me a little bit about the uh, the pro bono legal group that you're you're involved with to to help people who maybe they can't afford a lawyer when they've got a case like this? So can you tell me about that? Yeah. So Mike, what we've done is we've started um, a clinic called the um, Animal Law Pro Bono Clinic, and it's part of LSLAP, the Law Students Legal Advice Program, and it's housed at UBC, but it's uh, it's not um, overseen by UBC or the law school but the clinicians are law students. So it's, um, it's something that I've been thinking of how to do uh, something for the community and something for my, my animal law students um, so that they could get real-world experience. And, and this clinic provides that. It's the first of its kind in Canada, and, and our goal is to be able to provide low-income people and their animals with access to legal justice. So um, this is this is um, it's a it's a really it's a win win for the community and for animals and for people. Right. And do you think that uh, Susan Santix, uh, this would have been a, a, a classic case of where she could have could have used some pro bono legal assistance? I, I really do, Mike. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely do. I think I think cases like Susan's um, help me solidify why we needed something like this and, and how important it is to the community. There's a hole there. She wouldn't have qualified for legal aid, for example, in case any of the listeners are wondering. Um, you know, there's just the the system doesn't um, allow for um, people uh, to get representation right. on, except under extreme circumstances almost for um, for legal aid. Right. In a situation like this where you have a dog that has bitten someone and that's not not in dispute um, and there was there was evidence entered in the in the case I understand that the judge determined that the dog was was dangerous and there yes. was some evidence presented to that case. Like if you yes. had been handling the case if you look backwards like how do you how would you counter that? Like if a judge says, "Well, I've determined this dog is dangerous. I've looked at the evidence and the dog seems to have a willingness to bite as, as was reflected in some of the records in the case." How would a right. how would you as as a lawyer um, defend defend the dog and the owner well the first thing i would have been doing is i would have been getting um an expert report and i would have been getting um assistance from a veterinarian to figure out is there something going on with this dog is punky okay does he have 
um, or, you know, whoever the dog was. Does this dog need to have, uh, for example, um, some sort of medication that would help tone down aggression? Or is there some hmm. behavioral modification that can be taken? Um, because once the bites already happen, the bites already happen, I'd be looking to the future to say, can this animal be managed even if um, he or she cannot be fully rehabilitated? Is there a way to be able to manage this dog, as I say, to ensure public safety? Because I am not impervious to that. I think that's incredibly important. I'm not going to be one of those people who says it doesn't matter. It does. Public safety counts a lot for me, too. Right. So so would you therefore say that in some circumstances, putting a dog down or euthanizing a dangerous dog would be the right thing to do? I, in extreme cases, it is. And I'd say that usually there would have to be, again, there would have to be a medical reason for that. And, and I think uh, uh, veterinarians are often under, underutilized in this respect. Um, I use veterinarians as experts in these cases all the time. And I think it's really important, as I say, for the physical and behavioral assessment to come in through their, um, their eyes rather than um, just a, a trainer or behaviorist. Okay, it's an interesting case. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks very much.